So Money, episode 116, Dr. Brad Klotz. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to So Money. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Do you ever wonder why we do the silly things that we do with money? I ask myself this question a lot. Why do we have so many money issues in our relationships, whether it's our relationship with our siblings, our parents, our spouses, our friends? What does your relationship with money have to do with how you spend and how you save? Why do we sometimes associate being rich with being evil? Our guest today explains it all as his profession. Dr. Brad Klontz is an award-winning financial psychologist and a certified financial planner. He works as an associate professor of personal financial planning at Kansas State University and a partner of Occidental Asset Management, LLC. It's a fee-only investment advisory firm in Northern California. And I have known Brad for several years as I've been working in this field of money and personal finance and psychology of money. And when I was writing when she makes more, I called Brad and I said, I'd love to interview you extensively for this book because I think you're just a wealth of knowledge. And he said, hey, why don't we do a survey together? And the survey was born, you know, months later. And it was such an honor to work with him because this is his expertise, you know, really finding out what motivates people when it comes to their money, why we do the things that we do. And it's all psychological. I mean, it's never about the money, right? And so he has a lot of interesting insights and stories. And his story, his own story, is very, very interesting as well. We're going to get to all of this during the show. Just a little bit more about Brad. He is also the co-founder of Your Mental Wealth and the Financial Psychology Institute. He has co-authored five books on the psychology of money, and he received the Innovative Practice Presidential Award from the American Psychological Association. His work has also been featured in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, among many other places. Several takeaways from our time with with Brad. One, why we dislike rich people. You're going to want to hear that. Advice for couples that fail to see eye to eye over money. Selling everything to invest in tech stocks, something he did uh, early on in his life, and of course he regrets it now. And the one investment that he says saved his marriage. Here is Dr. Brad Klontz. Brad Klontz, welcome to So Money. It's so wonderful to connect, and you're all the way in Hawaii. I'm in New York. Thank God for Skype. Yes. Yeah. And I don't like to talk too much about the weather over here because it just makes people hate me. And, and I want this to go well. So I don't want you to start yeah. with a grudge. There's no way that I could hate you, Brad. And for <laughs> listeners, you, Dr. Klontz and I have partnered together to work on a fantastic study. I'm very proud of it. Looking across the country at uh, over a thousand women split between those making more than their partners and those making less. It was all part of uh, the research for my book, When She Makes More, which again comes out in paperback um, this spring. And so Brad, first, thank you so much for helping me navigate all that. When I thought about doing this study, I reached out to you just because I wanted to have you in my court just as like a help someone to help me with the research. And you were so generous. You said, let's just do the study together. And that was such a gift. So thank you for that. 
you're very welcome. And actually, I I loved partnering with you because you really helped um, you know formulate the research questions, and it really went in some directions it wouldn't have gone otherwise. So I thank you in return. Oh yeah, my honor, my pleasure. And so you, this is your world, right? You you are a financial psychologist. You are deeply entrenched in academia, in research. Uh, you uh, you know, in addition to having your own consultancy, you also are a certified financial planner. You are an, a professor, uh, and so I, and all at the crossroads of kind of consumer behavior, psychology, and money. Your latest work focuses on the wealthy. And as we were talking before we went live here, one of the questions you sought to answer was, why do we hate wealthy people? Why do we despise the rich? What have you found? Well, it's interesting because actually the the research idea came from an article that Paul Sullivan in the New York Times, who I know you've recently had on your podcast, he hit me up for a quote and, and some, some ideas around, um, and it was back in 2008. And the question that he posed was, is all of this anger towards the wealthy a good thing? That was the question. Um, and as a financial psychologist in our research, we, we conclusively show that it, it's actually not good in terms of your own income, your own net worth. And that article actually got more hate mail towards him and me than I think anything I've ever experienced before. And I wasn't apologizing for being wealthy. I mean, the basic premise was that um, if you are, if you have a lot of strong negative feelings about money, negative feelings about wealth, it's going to sabotage your financial health. And so then you became curious about um, getting to the root of this. Culturally, I mean, we, we sort of see like the bad guys in all the movies are like these rich oil tycoons, you know, or like uh, just these people that live in, you know, people who are wealthy typically associated with being uh, insensitive, um, selfish. What, what, what started all of that? You know, it's great that you brought that up because when I when I do um, trainings on this, I talk about the robber barons and um, Madoff, and there is there are no lack of evidence of um, people who are insanely wealthy doing terrible things to other people. And um, in, in our research, what we found is that people who have really strong anti-rich beliefs, anti-wealthy beliefs, so like rich people are greedy, money corrupts, um, they, ironically, they also tend to endorse what we've identified as money worship beliefs, which is the belief that more money would wake, make me happier. I really want to have more money. So I, I've called it money ambivalence. So many of us have um, very negative feelings about money and the wealthy. And at the same time, we want to aspire to be wealthy. And that, that conflict internally really sets us up to be stuck and sets us up for failure. And then cognitive dissonance comes into play. And we start to look for evidence that, uh, you know, and, and screen out any sort of disconfirming evidence about wealthy people doing great things with their money. So you'll hear that the Bill Gates Foundation did X, Y, and Z. And your mental filter would be like, yeah, well, he's probably doing that for very nefarious reasons. <laughs> and this internal conflict sets us up for failure. So a lot of my work has been identi around identifying what for most people are very unconscious belief patterns around money and finding out whether or not those um, are, are, are actually linked to lower income, lower net worth, and they are. So we've been able to identify these thought patterns and prove through science that they will sabotage your financial health. 
And you also do a lot of work with couples. I often reference you in my articles. I think you're my go-to source at this point for uh, just the best kind of advice, insights on how couples can navigate financial differences. You've done a, a load of studies on this that's just, you know, coming to a partnership, it's likely you will be, you will have differing financial viewpoints. Um, your biggest advice for couples these days, especially if someone listening on the podcast is about to head down the aisle or has been married and recently discovered, you know what, I can't stand the way my partner thinks about money, spends, saves. What would you say to that couple? First thing. Well, first thing I would say is that welcome to the club. It's, pro- <laughs> it's probably pretty normal. Right. Um, most, most issues that couples fight about are never resolved. So that's the one thing that you should come in knowing. Um, instead, you have to find a negotiation. Um, and what I would say, my, my best tip for couples, is to just stop fighting about the latest expenditure and have that conversation you should have had your first, your second, I don't know, maybe your fourth date, where you talk about your money beliefs. And I know this is where you live and breathe too, Farnoosh, where you really believe that it's really important to understand this. Um, so what did, what did your parents teach you about money? What are your biggest fears around money? What are your goals around money? Because so many of us, um, I, you know, it's interesting and it's a terrible, terrible fact that couples will fight for seven years around the same topic before they go get help. And if I can really understand where my wife comes from around her upbringing around money, her fears, her goals, and she understands that about me, it puts the conflict in an entirely new context in which we can understand each other and and love each other in a very deeper way. You also act as your partner's therapist because this isn't stuff we typically talk about. So I have discoveries as my wife is um, patiently listening to me talk about my family history. So I have found in my work with couples, spending time having that conversation really can um, sort of take the peanut butter off the gears in terms (laughs) of moving towards a solution because now I understand and I feel heard and I feel understood. And a lot of times when we're fighting um, and we get louder and more dramatic, it's because we're not feeling heard and understood. Yes, and just because you're speaking louder doesn't mean people, the, the other person is understanding you any better. Seven years, that's a long time to be, you know, just suff- suffering with an issue. That's, that seems like it would, yeah, people suffering. would break earlier. It is. That's the word, suffering, and it's creating resentments. And, and what happens is that you may come with a certain premise that gets very exaggerated after fighting about it for seven years. So you may not even feel that passionately about it to begin with, but, but since you've both taken sides on this issue, it becomes very dramatic and, and hurtful over the years. Well, I want to change gears a little bit. So often when I interview you, it's because I want to uh, – learn about how we can all be better financial managers, whether in our relationships or um, in our other sorts of partnerships. Um, I want to know more about you, Brad, and how you think about money, beginning with your financial philosophy. What would you say is your guiding money mantra? Um, well, you know, I think that it's, it's uh, two things. So number one, I think you have to shoot for the stars. So, and, and this is something that I try to do in my own life. So, um, you know, come up with outrageous, outlandish goals and go for it. So that's number one. Number two, hedge your bet. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and so many of us, I think, get into trouble because we, you know, we get, you know, for example, a, an advance on a book and then we quit our day job and we throw all our energy into it. Or um, we, we borrow money and we start a business. Um, for me, it's been really important to have that plan A that's exciting, that's 
all about growth, taking risks, and then also to have a plan B that's in place that will guarantee success. So it's structured, it, it's perhaps more boring, um, but for me, I think it's important not to let go of um, making sure that at least plan B is in place. So very specifically in terms of having a source of income, setting aside a significant amount for retirement, um, and not taking all of your chips and keep doubling down on the table because I, I've just met many very brilliant entrepreneurial types who have failed. And typically what we see in the media and all the success cases. Um, and for many of us, you know, we, we run into those blocks, we, we end up failing. So I think it's really important to have a plan A and a plan B. And you never have to stop with your plan A. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's great to know that for me, I can take lots of chances. I can just scratch that itch. I can explore. And then plan B is in place so I know that I'll, I will meet my retirement goals without a hitch. Did, were you raised in a household where money was pretty uh, was a pretty fluent topic? What was your biggest money memory growing up that kind of shaped the way that you approach and think about money today as an adult? Uh, well, you know, I actually came from a family where money really wasn't talked about much. Um, and, you know, we grew up working class slash poor, like right on the, the boundary there. My mom was a single mom for a while. Um, and I, I had some, you know, I, I would say most of my memories were, were sort of shocking in a negative sense. Um, one thing that really stands out for me is um, I was around 11 years old. Um, I was really into martial arts. And um, for my birthday, I got karate lessons. So I got to take part in a karate class. I was, again, I was 11 years old. So I went through three months of this karate training. And then my mom told me, well, that's it. That was it. And I was so devastated um, because I I was realizing this is something I really wanted to do, but we didn't have enough money. And I think um, I I really learned at that time because for me, I really wasn't into possessions much, but I really realized that, you know, having money um, can bring joy from the the lens of opportunities to experience things you wouldn't otherwise experience. So that one really stands out for me. Um, In general, too, I... Growing up in a divorced family, money was was very often used sort of as a battleground and as a weapon. Um, and I think that through the course of that, even though I had, I think, very well-intended, well-meaning parents who loved me very much, a lot of broken promises. And, and I think that I, I, th- I learned at a very early age, you know, you can't rely on anyone but yourself in terms of taking care of yourself. Um, and, you know, ironically, I think in our culture today, that is exactly where we're at. So like our grandparents, my grandfather, for example, worked for GM, um, same job his whole life. He retired, had a pension, had Social Security. Um, So that was how it was. You'd be taken care of. But I think it's really helped me to realize, um, actually, you need to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And and being a a business owner, it's it's exactly true. Um, And the shift, there's, you know know this, Furnish, there's been a dramatic shift from pensions and companies holding the retirement burden to individuals, yet we have not trained individuals on how to handle that burden and what to do. No, that's couldn't be said. Well, better said. I, and and it's scary sometimes. I was just actually at a uh, retirement village the other weekend in Florida visiting my in-laws who go there once a year for like a month and they hang out in Florida with all these other 65 plus, 55 to 65 year old on average um, Americans. And I'm thinking to myself, this is so much of a part of our culture today, this idea that people can retire to this sort of place where there's unlimited golf and it's just like this whole community in town really built around seniors. Um, seniors who, by the way, planned for their retirement or are receiving pensions, you know, what's going to happen in 20 years? Will this sort of society even exist as kind of like retirement village? Because as it stands, so many Americans are behind 
the planning efforts, you know, to be able to retire at, at, at 65 comfortably and to say, you know what, I'm going to go down to Florida and buy a house and play golf all day. Um, it's interesting how that model is going to change if it, if it will change. Yeah, and I think so much of it, it, it's not, and and I say this quite frequently because I truly believe it, it's not because we are, you know, unmotivated or we're, we're, we're not intelligent around money or we're just not doing the right things. We were not trained with this philosophy. We've grown up in a very different world and our educational system is really lagging in terms of equipping young people with the knowledge and just the entire mindset they need to be able to, um, reach their financial goals because the entire playing field has shifted. And um, I I think many Americans are walking around thinking that we're playing with an entirely different set of rules, an entirely different game. But that those days are over. It is now on the individual to make it happen. Absolutely. What would you say was your greatest financial failure, Brad, a moment in your career, your 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 financial life that was really um, perhaps regretful, although you're happy it happened because it taught you a lot. Yeah, I, I would say that for me, the one that stands out um, most pronounced, and actually it's what really threw me into the area of financial psychology in earnest. I was I was just getting out of grad school, and like many graduate students, I, I had a mountain of debt. So this was about 16 years ago or so, and I had $100,000 in school loans because I had to, um, had to borrow money to get through school. Um, and at that time, I saw people around me making a lot of money trading stocks, and um, I, during one, the course of one year, I saw one friend make $150,000 trading stocks and, and I'd be sitting at his computer and I'd say, well, what's that? And he's like, I don't know. And he'd buy it. <laughs> and in the course of course of a year, I saw him make $150,000. So I thought, well, only a chump would work for his money um, when it's so easy to make. And actually growing up poor, I, I realized that you know I need to do things differently than my family did. And nobody invested stocks in the stock market. So I did what any reasonable person would do. And I sold everything I owned of value. Um, and I, I was living in a house. I had a um, instead of this truck I had, I was driving a $500 car. I had like one plate, one knife, one spoon. And I was overjoyed because I had all my money in tech stocks. Now, unfortunately, I bought in three months before the crash. Oh, fortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately. Right. It probably would have been very unfortunate if that money had had tripled (laughs) Um, actually in terms of my psychology. Mm -hmm. So I I then watched the money just decline over time. And I I engaged in all the all the terrible sort of, um, you know, behavioral finance behaviors and not selling. And then I did what most psychologists do. And I, I blamed my mother. (laughs) <laughs> and I actually went home and I started, first of all, I looked into in the world of psychology and there was nothing for me there. I was trying to figure out why a normally intelligent person would do something so radically stupid with his money and I couldn't find anything. And so I went home and I, I very systematically started to interview all my family members, um, my mom, my sister, my dad, my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents, um, to gather as much information about my family history as I could. And, and these stories came to light for me that um, were were just profoundly impactful and it really showed me that I was totally set up to do this. One story in particular was my grandfather, and I I never knew this, but they lost all their money in the Great Depression. He was born in 1901 and so lived through that. Um, And since the family lost all the money, um, he lived into his 90s and never put a dollar in the bank. He put it in a lockbox in his attic his entire life. Uh, I had no idea that he did that. Um, But what I did know is that my family had a lot of anxiety around money. Um, And so I carried that anxiety, uh, but I had no idea what the story was. So for me, going home, 
learning the story put all my behaviors and, and beliefs in an entirely new context, and it really helped me take charge and make changes. That's a great story. I mean, not minus the whole, you know, investing in tech stuff. Um, <laughs> the, the, the outcome was quite uh, was quite groundbreaking for you in a lot of ways. It really was, and it, and and part of it was, you know, I, I went into the field of psychology looking for answers, and it is it had always served me well. And and one of the other philosophies I have is that I really try to take a hundred percent responsibility for every aspect of my failures, mm -hmm. um, every single aspect. So I really try my best not to put blame on anyone else. And, and I'm saying, hopefully my wife's listening. I try not to blame you, um, <laughs> but it, it's, it's incredibly empowering to take charge of all of it because, um, and this is actually in our research on the, um, ultra wealthy, this is a, an aspect of their personality that people who have less money don't share is this real intense, um, internal locus of control is what we call it in psychology, where um, all everything that's bad that's happened to me is my fault. Um, because then I can look internally and figure out where are my errors in thinking? What mistakes did I make? Um, if somebody betrayed me, did I not have a good friend filter or business plan in place? I mean, what is it about me and what I didn't know that helped create this situation? Because therein lies the power to change. Yes, yes, yes. Sing it, Brad. I mean, <laughs> I feel as though I've said this for many years that nobody cares more about your money than you. And if you can embrace that, that, that philosophy, if I had my, you know, my money mantra is that nobody cares more about your money than you. And it's not to say that people are out to get you, right? But when you can inherit that as your, as one of your financial tenets, I, I strongly believe that that will lead you down a rosier path because it does put you in a position to say, I am empowered. I have the power to make the right decisions. As much as I can make bad decisions, I have also the power to make healthy ones too. So let's get educated. Let's have some planning in place so that I can make the best decisions possible and, and take credit at the end for all my great, for all my financial wins. Absolutely. And, and it actually, feel, it's a little bit seductive to have friends and, and emotional supports who say, you know, there's no way you could have known that or, you know, it's not your fault. I mean, th there's some catharsis psychologically for that. Um, but actually, I want to hear that. Um, actually, yes, this is your fault, <laughs> because if it's my fault, I can fix it. And I and I like you said, it's all about empowerment. And I get motivated when I run into a wall and I and I realize, hey, this is my doing. I, that's exciting to me. Yeah, I love that. Okay, what would you say is your so money moment? Oh, my so money moment. Um, it, I would say it was in September, October 2008. Um, and this was a terrible, terrible time for a lot of people in our country. Um, I, I and, and Farnoosh, you and I are in the middle of this. I, I was very frustrated because I had a paper that I had published, a study on the treatment of money disorders. And it was a study that I had done um, based on our treatment program. And I had been trying to get it published for a couple of years. Um, and it was accepted. It just took a really long time to get published and, and see print. So I was very frustrated with that. Um, and, you know, coincidentally, um, it was published September 2008. And it was How to Treat a Money Disorder. And, and the next month was the financial crisis. And so that study ended up being a feature in the New York Times. And, and I would say that was my money moment from the sense of, um, you know, the, the next day, and that was a cover story, the next day I got calls from everybody. And my, my, my box was full, 2020, um, NBC, CBS, I mean, the list goes on and on. And it was terrifying too. 
So that's the other part that, that I've run into in my life. Um, I'm constantly seeking to expand what I, what I call my financial comfort zone. Um, and that's sort of the zone in which you're comfortable financially, where you're, you know, what you know, the traditions, you know how to operate. Um, and in that moment, I, I'd worked really hard to, um, you know, get my work out into the public sphere because I, I really, um, it, it's part of my mission, my personal mission around that. Um, and, and, you know, that was that moment for me. And I was offered, you know, a six-figure book deal, um, but I was utterly terrified and I, I really at that moment, and, and it was that day that I started to expand my team because I realized that if I was left to my own devices being thrust into this new world, I was probably going to crash and burn because I had a lot of fear because all of a sudden everybody was interested in what I was doing and I, and I didn't know how to handle that. So mm-hmm. I ended up you know, hiring a manager and getting an agent. Um, and, I, and I think about that because in other times in my life, um, when I run into that wall of fear and anxiety, it's usually because I don't have the tools or the knowledge that I need to um, move forward. And it's always that critical point in the road where you have an opportunity like that because there's part of you that's going to say, stay small. Don't do it. Um, this is scary. It could go wrong. You know, How do you know who to trust? And this happens actually with a lot of people who are, are born poor is they get money and they don't want to work with a financial advisor because they have a lot of fear because this wasn't modeled for them to have team members, other people doing your taxes, other people managing your investments. Um, So for me, I I look at that as my money moment because I was willing to ask for help and expand my team. And oh man, how many years ago was that? Because now I I can't imagine anyone doing their own taxes if they have complex taxes or, you know, I'm a big fan of, I just interviewed my financial planner on the show earlier this morning, it'll air later. But I mean- you knew this before I think it was like the trend. Right. And, and it's, it's for me, it's, it's, it, it was, it's always been so tough because when you grow up, um, you know, working class or poor, you do it all yourself. You know, you don't hire somebody to, to mow the lawn. I mean, there's, there's, you're actually criticized in that culture for doing that. Of course you need to do it yourself. Learn how to do your taxes. But after a while, it, it, like you said, you know, it, you're, it, you shouldn't be your own dentist either, by the way. I mean, it's sort of the same philosophy. Um, and, and I have found, of course, um, as I, my financial comfort zone has grown is that I benefit tremendously from having that outside advice. You shouldn't be your own dentist. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, I want to go down on record (laughs) suggesting that. I love it. Brad, what's your number one financial habit? Um, I would say that it's it's a very uh, strict and um, structured savings plan. So I'm not great at budgets. And, and I, I talk a lot about budgets being sort of like diets. So as soon as I start thinking about, um, you know, you know, restricting my spending, I, I, I want to go spend more. As soon as I think about going on a diet, I start craving cheeseburgers. So my philosophy has always been to set up the goals first. So I, I've, I've always, you know, it used to be 40% of my income or higher that I would save for towards retirement. Um, but then I met my lovely wife who's like, Hey, you know, it'd be great if we had a couch instead of folding chairs, you know, that type of thing. So I was like, all right, so I can reduce my (laughs) savings rate. Um, but I would say it's, it's that it's, it's that, um, commitment to, to savings. So that's my plan. That's my plan B it's boring. Um, but it's predictable and it's guaranteed to work. So I will absolutely meet my retirement goals and I get to play in the plan A, exciting growth, entrepreneurial world, but I'm also taking care of, of the basics. You know, we use this word boring a lot on the show to describe sort of the, the, the approach, the, uh, the prudent approach to managing your money, which is the right approach, I think, if you're looking to invest in the long run. 
Although I will say now that once you finish that, once you cross that finish line, it's not, it's not boring anymore. It's exciting. It's awesome because you have done the hard work and the boring work and now you're at a place where you can enjoy that money and you can live really comfortably at a time when you don't want to be worried about money ever again in your life. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree. And, and, and part of my spending plan um, instead of a budget is, is to really mm-hmm. sort of think about it. And it's very motivating for me to think about and to visualize with my wife, where do we want to be? What do we want to be doing? Who do we want to be with? Um, because for me, that's what really gets me excited. And it becomes really easy to say no to things that just really aren't that important to me right now. Um, because, you know, and I build in the short-term ones too. So where do we want a vacation? Where do we want to, um, not, it's not all about retirement. Um, you need to build in some of that, you know, joy now because mm-hmm. who knows, you know? Yes. Yes. So I was talking specifically about retirement, but yes. Um, enjoy the life. I, I'm a big p- fan of s- spending, spending wisely. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a big part of this show as well. All right, Brad, you've been a fantastic fun guest as I just, I knew you would be before we go. I'd like you to finish some sentences for us. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say a hundred million dollars, I just threw a big number out there for all guests because some of my guests are make that money in like a year. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I got to make this a big number. First thing I would do is. First thing I would do is I would invest it all. And then I would look at what I wanted to do with 4% of that a year in terms of charity, in terms of, in terms of business growth, in terms of taking care of my family. The one thing that I spend my money on that makes my life easier or better is. Um, actually this saved my marriage. Hmm. Um, we, we pay somebody to help clean our house. It <laughs> and, saved your marriage. It saved, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm perhaps being dramatic, but, um, that was pro- and we started doing that a decade ago, but it was an incredible relief for me and my wife, I think in terms of just taking care of something that we seem to argue about. And, and, it wasn't anything really bad. I just we just had different definitions of dirty. It's the last frontier. I talk about this in my book too, and you helped me with that chapter. It's just like, you know, couples we we fight about a lot of things in, in marriage. You know, it's you know in laws, the lack of sex we're having, uh, the money, but the house and like a lot of that can get resolved with therapy. But the the housekeeping portion. It's like you just got to throw money at it, you know, and just get someone who is better at it, has time for it to do it for you. And then you both can go on your, you know, on with your lives, because I feel as though that is the last frontier for arguments in in marriage. It really is. I would say it it decreased our um, sort of like ambient irritability by about 75 (laughs) percent. You're just full of good sound bites, Brad. What can I say? Uh, I love it. Okay, so moving along, my biggest guilty pleasure that I spend a lot of money on, maybe even too much, is? Well, I I would say it's travel, Mm -hmm. just in terms of, um, you know, and and it's not to necessarily like outlandish places, but actually most of my travel is to Detroit um, from Hawaii because that's where my family is. But I would say it's travel. I I really like to to get close to people I love and and do things that are fun. I was going to say, where else would you want to go other than Hawaii? I mean... But uh, family's important. This this is a terrible place to, to come, you know, if you're looking for a geographical cure for your mood, uh, because there's really nowhere else to go. So <laughs> that, that makes it even more depressing. Oh, so. my gosh. Okay. One thing I wish I had known about money growing up is? 
I think that I, I really would have wished that, um, you know, and, and I think part of it had to do with the uh, socioeconomic class I was, I was brought up in, but I really think that I had would have been taught about investing and about just the basics around, um, you know, this is an outline or a goal for how you become wealthy. And that was something that was utterly lacking in my family. We had a lot of um, tools and structures for staying poor. Wow. Jeez. Um, how do, what do they think of you now? I mean, are, are they so happy to see that you've, you've just made such a, you've come so far in, I mean, in the world of money too, which is something that they struggle with growing up and, and raising you. Yeah. Yeah. And actually I think, um, you know, I would say most of my family has been moving forward in, in the American dream, which is great. Um, but yeah, I, when, when I go home, I just, it's just, it, we're all the same when I get mm-hmm. home and, and it's, uh, a lot of love and a lot of support. When I donate money, I like to give to blank because, um, you know, so I, I'm, I'm a board member of the United way. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that organization, but of course. they, I, yeah, I, I love them because, um, you know, they do a lot of vetting of, of local agencies. So I'm, I'm very much in support of that. Um, you know, my mother-in-law is a, uh, work is a shelter manager at the YWCA. Um, and so I, I, I've given there also, and, and, you know, domestic violence is such a pervasive itch, issue in our culture, um, that has such a huge impact on so many families and it just crosses the socioeconomic spectrum. So, um, that is an area that's near and dear to my heart. And then also I, I actually like to give, um, in a more personal, it's, it's a bit anonymous, but, um, where I will be in certain situations where I realize that if I can do some anonymous small giving, um, for example, for a, a child, an adolescent who wouldn't have otherwise been able to, you know, be on a sports team or something like that. So smaller gifts, but that I can see a, a real direct impact. And last but not least, I'm Brad Klontz and I'm so money because. Oh, um, well, I've, I've been called a goal addict and I, I embrace that term, but so I, I actually like that part of myself, but I would say the thing that, that makes me so money um, is that is probably my personal mission statement. And this is something that I run all my act- activities through. Actually, before you and I started talking, I reminded myself of my personal goal, uh, my personal mission statement, and that is um, to help bring hope and healing to the world. And so in everything I do, whether it's a conversation with one person, whether it's a media interview or a book, I'm always, that's sort of my mission. So whether it's a small world, the big world, I just want to help bring hope and healing. Well, thank you so much for bringing your spirit and your advice and uh, all your your great insights to the show. I I know I appreciate it. My audience certainly um, has so much to go home and practice now. <laughs> Thanks to you. Brad, tell us where we can find more about you and, and, and follow you. Um, probably two websites, uh, Your Mental Wealth. Um, that is the uh, website where I, I do a lot of financial psychology writing and I have a lot of resources there. Um, and then I am a um, owner of a financial planning firm. So that's the other area. Um, and that is OccamLLC.net. OccamLLC.net. Okay, we will be sure to put all of that at SoMoneyPodcast.com. Brad, thank you so much. And we'll have to have you back and and learn more because you're constantly studying and researching this area for us and there's a lot to learn still. And so we appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a, it was a pleasure and an honor. 
that is a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Brad, hop on to somoneypodcast.com. We've got all of the links. And there you can also find the transcript and comments for this interview. And while you're at somoneypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh and ask me a question. Whatever's on your money mind, I tend to answer all questions on the weekends. And if you'd like to win a chance for a free 15-minute money session with me. Here's how to qualify. Hop onto iTunes and leave a review for the show. And every Saturday, I pick one new reviewer to receive a free 15-minute money session with me. So if this is something that you want to try out, maybe connect with me for for a one-on-one, hop onto iTunes and leave a review. And I thank you in advance. So thanks again for tuning in, everyone. Thanks again to my fabulous guest, Brad Klontz. I hope your day is so money. 